We are starting, though, talking about what is happening when it comes to policing in Surrey and how we went from this. First, how about, first of all, we need to keep the Surrey RCMP right here in Surrey. To this. We're well down the road. Uh, We've been at this for two years. I've got 300 police officers uh, in total. I have 155 police officers working alongside our colleagues, the RCMP. I've got another 55 uh, ready to go for November. I've got 14 recruits at the JI, and I've got uh, another 14 recruits on the road. That first clip was Brenda Locke, the new mayor of Surrey, and that was Norm Lipinski, the the chief of the Surrey Police Force, speaking earlier this week on CKNW. Well, we are joined now by Wally Opal, former chair of the Surrey Police Transition Task Force. Thank you so much for being with us. It's always good to be with you, Jill. Well, it's just, it seems that we have two very, very different opinions or thought, thoughts on where things are going in Surrey. Uh, you were the chair of the Surrey Police Transition Task Force. I know you've been following this very closely. So break it down for us, if you can, what is happening and what might happen in Surrey? Sure. Uh, first of all, I don't want to get involved in the politics out there. That's not my job. Uh, but I can tell you that ultimately... The decision will be made by the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth. And there's a number of factors that he no lo- that he will undoubtedly uh, consider and think about. First of all, uh, what are we going to do about those three to 400 people who have already signed on to come to Surrey from other police agencies? Um, what are we going to do about them? What, there's a very human element involved here. Do we just ignore them? Uh, they're not going to go back to their other jobs, and it's wishful thinking for people to say, well, they can always go back. Does anybody really think that a sergeant who left Vancouver uh, will be able to go back to a sergeant's position in Vancouver? That's not going to happen. So you're looking at a whole bunch of damages that Surrey would have to pay. So that's a factor that that Mike Farnworth will have to consider. Uh, What are we going to do about those people? And uh, the other, I mean, there are collective agreements that were made. Equipment has been purchased. Um, all kinds of money that has been spent, and the movement is towards a new police force. The other thing is the province has an overall policing strategy. Uh, The first of that strategy appears to be that they're going to replace the RCMP as the provincial police force with their own police force. That means the province wants to get out of contract policing. See, any time you employ the RCMP, you have to enter into a contract with the federal government whereby the RCMP comes into your city, your jurisdiction, and polices on a contract. Contract policing in many ways is really a relic of the 50s. But So the province wants to get out of that, and the federal government wants to get out of that. So how is that going to fit with the overall strategy? Do we go back to the RCMP? under a contract, uh, Mike Farnworth is going to have to think about that. The other thing is that um, the, uh, the, the overall decentralization of community-based policing is something with community police boards, community uh, uh, de- downsizing, and, and having local decisions made at a local level are things that are, uh, are part of the provincial police force. So that, those are things that 
that the Solicitor General is going to have to think. The other thing is you've got to remember that in 2018, the Surrey City Council voted unanimously to uh, dispense with the RCMP as their police force and establish a new police force. So they're quite adamant about that. They had to go through a lot to do that. And uh, they went to the Solicitor General, and the Solicitor General agreed with them, gave them a green light, then established a, uh, a committee. And I chaired that committee. There were 12 highly qualified people on that committee, former police chiefs, police officers, community workers, uh, criminologists. So we prepared a uh, 12 to 1,400-page report as to what Surrey had to do. And that led to the establishment of a police board, the appointment of a, of a police chief, and the recruitment of officers. So that process has been going well above, well along. So now uh, do you go back to uh, uh, the RCMP? And does that mean that every time there's a provincial or a civic election that you change police forces? Those are things that, that Mike Farnworth will have to think about. That is that he's going to want some kind of stability in policing. So the fact that there has been an election, I think, is a factor that he'll have to consider. But he'll want to see a plan. What does the Surrey City Council want to do with the uh, future of policing? Are they prepared to pay 70 or 80 or 90 million dollars uh, to all the, for damages for all those people that have now uh, uh, signed on to the Surrey model? So those are things that, that need to be considered. It isn't simply a, a case of switching the, putting a switch on and switching off. It's, it's a very complex issue, particularly with the human element involved and what the council has said previously. You know, in 2018, it was uh, uh, put to the council whether or not they wanted to have a referendum, and they turned that down, and they wanted the province to establish and give sanction to their own police force that they could govern locally. And the province acceded to that. And uh, so here we are. So who knows what's going to happen next. But the um, it's not a simple solution. Those are factors that no doubt that Mike Farnworth will have to consider in the overall policing strategy of the province. Where are we going? Right. And it's not something that every four years, if a different mayor and council is voted in and if they run on the uh, keeping it, not keeping it, uh, going a civic force, going RCMP, it's not like you can flip back and forth every four years. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, there has to be some kind of stability. And as I said a moment ago, there has to be a human element involved. I mean, the families that have decided that uh, they want to move to the new police force. There are a number of senior R- R- RCMP officers who have signed on, left many years of seniority with the RCMP in order to go to Surrey, uh, and the number of Vancouver police who have given up their careers and their jobs in Vancouver have gone to Surrey. So what do you do about them? Do you just say, well, too bad, go, go back to Vancouver? Uh, it's not that quite that simple. So these are difficult issues, complex issues, that need to be considered before any movement can be made to go back to the RCMP. And the other thing you've got to think about is that contract policing, I mentioned that a moment ago, is something that the federal government is thinking about and getting out of contract policing. Alberta has now decided 
that they want to get out of contract policing and they want to have their own provincial police force replacing the RCMP. So I think the RCMP have done an excellent job. They've been here for 70 years. And uh, but the thing is, I think many cities and municipalities are thinking that they want more control over their own policing and have a police board, a police committee uh, that will deal with community priorities. So those are the things that need to be considered. And it's so not not so easy to have an election and say, okay, we're going back to the RCMP. Uh, these are decisions, as I said a moment ago, will have to be made by Mike Farnworth, having regard to the global overall uh, policies of where we're going as a province. The province has decided that they want to go into some kind of regional policing system where the province would be uh, divided into three regions, the interior, the lower mainland, and Vancouver Island. So where would a if we went back to a uh, RCMP model, how would that fit into what they're thinking and what their strategies are? So those are factors that need to be considered. So if the province moves to that, to, to three regional police forces, like you, you said, the three regions of the province, do you think then we might be having this conversation also not only about Surrey and going to a, a civic force there from the RCMP, but other municipalities and cities that have RCMP also going to, uh, to, to end those contracts? Absolutely. That's a good question, uh, Jill, because um, we know that having too many police forces can uh, result in a fractionalized type of policing. We learned that in the when we did the Picton inquiry, when uh, evidence was not shared. The RCMP had evidence that they did not share with Vancouver, and many women were killed because of the lack of sharing of information. Now, a lot of that's been corrected now with IHIP and all of those uh, joint enterprise type of, uh, of committees and, and forces. So that can be corrected, but the fact is, uh, what we are moving towards in North America is a community-based policing where uh, you have local priorities and local policing initiatives uh, taking place with police forces. So those are things that you have to consider, and uh, Mike uh, Farnworth, no doubt, will have to consider those. So going ahead for Surrey then, we'll see the new council sworn in uh, next month in just over a week from now. They'll put a report or give a report to Mike Farnworth saying this is our plan and then it's really up to him. But it seems like if the province is going down the route of going to regional policing and community-based policing, uh, it wouldn't really make sense for Farnworth to say okay to that plan. Instead, he might say, no, we're going to stay on track and you're going ahead with the Surrey Police Service. I would think so. I think Mike Farnworth has a, a different perspective in that he has to think of the best interests of the whole of the province. He is the chief law enforcement of, of the prov- officer of the province. So he has to think what is in the best interest of the province, not only Surrey. So he's got to think of the whole jurisdiction about policing. How can we best serve the interests of the public and when it comes to policing and community safety? So it goes beyond what Surrey wants or beyond what any particular city wants. All right. So we will continue watching and uh, to see what happens next. Wally Opal, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate always, it. Always good to be with you, Jill.
Well, as you just heard on the news, some big power outages because of the weather, the wind and the rain causing those outages. So we're going to check in with BC Hydro and get an update on that, what crews are dealing with. Susie Reeder is a spokesperson with BC Hydro. Susie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Where do things stand right now as far as outages and what crews are dealing with? So right now, the strong winds and heavy rain have left about 37,000 BC Hydro customers across the province without power. We've made good progress restoring about uh, 20,000 customers so far, but there are additional outages that are popping up. So some of the hardest hit areas, the lower mainland, uh, Vancouver, Burnaby and Surrey, about 18,000 out. Um, also on the island and the Gulf Islands, uh, Duncan and Port Alberni, hard hit, about 16,000 customers without power, and then a few thousand in the north, central interior, and Thompson as well. So the wind and rain have brought down uh, drought-weakened trees and branches, and it's really all hands on deck right now for us, uh, continuing to work around the clock to repair that damage. Uh, you mentioned drought-weakened trees. Are we seeing that, the dryness and trees that have become more vulnerable and that's causing more of these trees to come down? Yeah, absolutely. So the drought that we experienced into the fall uh, did not help the vegetation, which was already weakened from a hot summer. And then last year as well, we had the heat dome and we got kind of lucky in that we didn't get a ton of wind events last year. But we might make up for it this year and then those trees that were weakened last year uh they're also going to add to the damage this year. So um, just the extreme weather that we faced in terms of, you know, flooding, drought, it's all kind of come to this critical point where uh, the vegetation has really been through it. So one thing that we've done at BC Hydro to prepare is veg management. So we've been going out all year inspecting trees uh, that are near our infrastructure and trying to remove those that could potentially uh, cause outages when, uh, when wind like this starts up. And uh, I would imagine, too, that uh, using meteorologists at BC Hydro and kind of looking at this particular storm coming into the province, that you were able to get crews kind of stationed or ready to hopefully be able to tackle those hardest hit areas quickly? Yeah, absolutely. So we do have a team of in-house meteorologists, and we do track these storms very carefully. We were expecting this storm, and um, we we do have our crews and contractor crews in the right places right now to restore power as as quickly as possible. And just want to thank everyone for their patience because pretty much any, any outage is a frustrating outage. And it's a good reminder to be prepared because these extreme weather events, they are becoming more and more common with climate change. And just having that, um, uh, that kit that uh, for your family for 72 hours with water, food, batteries, external phone charger is really a must right now these days and uh, a plan for your family as well. You know, uh, lengthy outages, they're uncommon, uh, but when they do happen, uh, it's great to just have that plan of somewhere you can go. Right. No, definitely uh, good to plan ahead and and be as prepared as possible. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about this was a bit of an unusual one this morning, and we uh, heard from some witnesses who who saw this happen, but the the line that came down over Highway Mm -hmm. 1, and I know that caused Mm -hmm. a lot of backup, but what happened there? So the wind brought a cable down onto the highway, and um, we understand this is a huge inconvenience to so many, and, and we're, we're so sorry that this event happened, but uh, these, uh, and it's also extremely dangerous, and it, it's a good reminder to, to people who might be in this situation of, of what to do in, in those circumstances. So um, 
if you do uh, have this instance happen, a power line come down on your vehicle, near your vehicle, where I, I don't have the details of what exactly happened in this case in terms of uh, if the line came down on a vehicle or not. But what I can tell you is um, if this happens to you, uh, it is an emergency um, if you can drive out from under the power line or away from the electricity source if you can so travel 10 meters away in your car before stopping and then dial 911 now if you can't drive the vehicle if you're injured if the vehicle is inoperable or there's obstacles in your way just dial 911 and stay where you are until help arrives unless there's a secondary emergency okay so there's a fire in the vehicle um, then you're safer where you are. But if there's an emergency, a fire in the vehicle, and you absolutely must get out, um, just remember, do not touch the vehicle on the ground at the same time with any part of your body or clothing. Um, you want to remove any loose-fitting clothing or jackets and, and shuffle away and then call 911 for help once you've gone at least the length of a bus away from a vehicle. And then in these situations, we, we do see uh, you know, people wanting to help those that, that may be trapped in a vehicle uh, with a line in front of it or on it. And just please do not, do not approach a vehicle. Um, call 911 and stay a bus length away uh, for your safety and the safety of those in the vehicle. It, it really is an emergency. And it's, um, you know, it's a very scary, um, serious situation, and, and it is an emergency. And electricity, you know, it, it, it can be deadly. Like, it, it's safe, but it, in situations like this, it can be deadly. So that's why we, we just try to educate customers on electrical safety as much as possible and, and just respecting it and, and staying away. And, you know, even if you see one of these emergency situations, your instinct is to want to help. But the best way you can help is to stay away and call 911. Uh, you're right. And it's a good one to talk about, I suppose, and even try and imagine it because like, like you said, we don't see this very often, which is good. And this was a particularly uh, strange one when it came down. It was on Highway 1 near Brunette. Mm-hmm. But you're right. The instinct would be to help people probably mm-hmm. uh, if they're and also to kind of just get out of your car perhaps as quickly as possible if you see a line on it when uh, it's, uh, as you said there, to stop, assess what's going on and make sure you're following all those steps to get out safely. Yeah, absolutely. So again, if you can drive safely away, uh, please do that and travel the length of a bus away before stopping. Um, if you can't drive the vehicle, um, then just dial 911 and stay where you are until help arrives. But yeah, I mean, very scary situation. Um, also critical area. We understand how frustrating this must be for everyone uh, driving today as well. And um, we're working as quickly as possible. Uh, we have our crews telling us that they're aiming for 3 p.m. to have uh, to have that fixed and, and um, the highway back in working condition. So, um, so yeah, thanks to everyone for just for being patient and, um, yeah, and just stay safe. Right. So, but aiming for 3 p.m. Uh, and that's PM. such a, a busy part of the highway. So best yeah. to avoid that as yeah. it's going to, I know it was a mess when this happened. So if people can oh. avoid that to stay out of the way of crews there and uh, hopefully we'll get things back, uh, back to yeah. normal. Yeah. Um, as far as the other outages and uh, other uh, weather like this expected, do we know what we're expecting, say, for the next 12, 24 hours? Yeah, so we are expecting the wind event to continue into the late afternoon and evening and then uh, die off a little bit by tomorrow morning. There's another wind event expected for this Sunday. Uh, so, yeah, we're just going to we're just going to work around the clock to restore these outages. And um, we just want to thank everyone for their patience.
All right. And uh, to keep that patience handy, at least for the next little while. Uh, Susie, thank you so much, as always, uh, for joining us and bringing us up to date. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. Well, as you have heard in the news, a BC woman, one of two women who are back in Canada, one of two Canadian women taken out of Syria. They arrived in Montreal and Kimberly Pullman actually is in court, was in a courtroom in Chilliwack earlier today. Well, we wanted to talk more about this case and what led to the release. So joining us to do that is Richard Curland, who is an immigration lawyer as well as a policy analyst. Richard, thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Let's talk about this case, and it's getting a lot of attention. Two Canadian women, they've now been arrested Mm. after arriving back, repatriated from a Syrian detention camp. What are your thoughts or your reaction when you see this? No surprise. If you're a Canadian citizen overseas, how do you expect to support terrorism and not face consequences on your return to Canada? So I am pleased to see uh, four terrorism charges filed uh, by uh, law enforcement. There's leaving Canada to participate in activity of a terrorist group, participation in the activity of a terrorist group, uh, and uh, providing, making available property or services for terrorist purposes. And the last one is a conspiracy charge, conspiracy for leaving Canada to participate in activity of terrorist groups. Now, there is that presumption you are innocent till proven guilty. No question about that. Uh, She'll be entitled to her uh, day in court and a full and complete defense. But the message is clear. Don't support terrorism. And if you're going outside of Canada, don't think for a second that people won't know, people won't care, and, and there are no consequences uh, on return to Canada. So this is a great lesson. It took many years for the parliamentary process to engage the issue uh, appropriately and uh, make the necessary changes to capture uh, individuals who uh, would uh, support terrorism while overseas. So <laughs> it's a bright day for me, frankly. <laughs> Uh, Very different cases, both, like you say, involving going uh, to support terrorism, to to openly support a terrorist group. But we know that uh, the one woman uh, appeared in a Montreal court yesterday. Uh, Kimberly Pullman is in court actually appearing in a Chilliwack court today on a bail hearing. Her case is a little bit different in that we know she's Mm -hmm. ill. Uh, She did say Mm -hmm. that she regrets the choices that she made. I think she said Mm -hmm. that she actually tried to leave and then says that she was held hostage or she was held at the camp. Obviously, that doesn't change the fact that she still left and, and participated in this. But how much do those, her illness and the fact that she's, yeah. she's showing regret or remorse, do those play yeah. into this? You bet. And I think that should be scrutinized most carefully by uh, the judicial process. After all, remember there was this story about what they called two weak-minded individuals who kind of walked into an almost entrapment scenario and were uh, uh, alleged to be terrorism, going to bomb some uh, railroad in Ontario. After many years, turns out that they did have weak personalities. They did have serious uh, health issues. And uh, things turned around for them. 
And, and that's why we have our domestic legal protections in Canada through the judicial process to case by case analyze the specifics, the accused. And I would not be surprised if it turns out that, uh, yes, she did uh, support or, or somehow uh, technically meet uh, the required uh, a fact pattern, at least to a criminal conviction. However, that can be mitigated. If it can't be dealt with in a defense, it sure can be dealt with in terms of sentencing. So our Canadian justice system provides precisely that, justice. And uh, I think this uh, second case uh, will be an interesting one to follow. How much does it play into it? Because I know people will look at this and on the one hand say, okay, and, and we've heard this argument that, that this serious illness for uh, Kimberly Pullman, she would have wasted away. She wouldn't have been getting any treatment mm. where she was. But how is Canada required, again, when someone's left mm. to support a terrorist organization and they fall ill, is Canada required to bring that person home if one of the main reasons is so they can get health care? Yeah, uh, and I've seen that play out in other areas. For example, do we have obligations to uh, save our um, applicants for Canadian permanent residents who are in Afghanistan and ill? Uh, how If we have uh, a Canadian who's in, quote-unquote, a theocratic nation that doesn't enjoy our standards at all or values, or how far do we have to go to extract them to uh, safety in Canada? So it really is done case by case, country by country, uh, and and, uh, careful consideration is provided by global affairs as well as the minders in senior Ottawa on uh, intervening. Remember, an intervention isn't just pushing the send button on some computer somewhere. Lives are put at risk, Canadian lives, be it diplomatic, military, or otherwise. Uh, so these these are hard calls. You have to take into consideration the risks to the people who w- may have to physically intervene to extract the person concerned. And what are you giving in return? For example, terrorist groups are well known for saying, well, you want her or you want this person back in Canada for medical treatment. We can see our way in doing that if you do something for us. It's a nasty path. You're dealing with nasty people. So it should be case by case. Uh, and that combination of savoir um, faire uh, and uh, good old Canadian common sense to be applied with uh, the public interest always at the forefront, as well as the interests of the people who are going to put their lives at risk to bring this uh, person back to Canada. Uh, with the case again of Kimberly Pullman, so I understand as well she's actually she has dual citizenship, Canadian and U.S. citizenship, and traveled to to ISIS territory. I think she traveled through for whatever the path was. She traveled through Trinidad, but now that she's mm. back in Canada, does it matter that she also has citizenship in the United States? Um, no, not for our purposes, but uh, you know. In the Trump and post-Trump era, I don't think she's headed down south anytime soon. Uh, the welcome there would be dramatically different than the welcome here. And uh, America plays hardball with terrorist supporters. Uh, you're, you're, you're talking detention and serious attention for a duration that would be unacceptable in Canada. Uh, so, no, I don't see the springboard coming out and her popping on to uh, 
travel to the States anytime soon. And is each case independent or do you think that we might see other repatriations as far as we have seen some other Western countries do that as well uh, with women, with children, especially in these camps, even within the last few days? Uh, Does this mean there could potentially be more Canadians or are they not related? Well, um, I I suspect, and it is a real suspicion, that uh, a lot of this is predicated on the upcoming news cycle. Peace will appear to be breaking out in the Middle East. And under that good news cover slides a lot of these uh, exfils, a lot of these uh, people who are being returned to their Western countries. So I have a feeling that the uh, communications uh, professionals uh, (laughs) may have had uh, their spoon in this soup. Uh, So uh, in the the next, um, say, two, three weeks, uh, as news of positive uh, relationships, positive um, advances on the diplomatic front occur in the Middle East, you may see an increasing number of these kinds of cases uh, across uh, Western countries. Richard Curlin, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, Jill. It's always a pleasure. Take care. Well, we were talking with BC Hydro earlier about the power outages because of the strong weather and also about that power line that came down on Highway 1 earlier today and caused a lot of traffic chaos on the highway. Well, my next guest was there when it happened, and Steve is joining us on the line to talk about what happened to him. Steve, thank you so much for taking a few minutes with us. Hi there, how's it going? Very well, how about you? That's going better now. Well, uh, you've had quite a day for sure. So you were on the highway. What happened? Uh, so I was driving down the highway. I uh, just got past the Portman Bridge. Uh, the sun was starting to kind of glimmer through the clouds. The rain was stopped. So I cracked down my window and I turned, down, turned up my music. And uh, I looked to my left and there was a big sparky cable about 15 meters ahead of me. And it sounded like a giant wasp going off. And uh, next thing I know, uh, the top of my car got smacked by the other half of the cable and it was shook my entire car. And uh, yeah, pretty scary. I ended up looking in my rearview mirror and then I saw a wee Fiesta just pull over at the side of the road. And uh, yeah, yeah, I just drove off and that was that. Wow. So, so, so you heard it, and uh, did you see, I, I know you were putting it out on social media as well, uh, you looked up and, and saw that spark. What did it look like? Um, it was like a dangly rope with a wee bit of flame on the end, just kind of sparking around. And I only saw it for a split second, so uh, it, was, it was over and done with pretty quick. This still must have been, when you realized what had happened, uh, that must have been pretty jarring for you. Yeah, it was a moment of shock. It was uh, about 10 seconds of a bit of disbelief, you know. Turned the music right down and put the window up after that. (laughs) I guess so. Uh, You you mentioned you looked behind and you saw a Fiesta, so a smaller car uh, behind you. What kind of vehicle or what, you don't have to tell us what kind, but what kind of size vehicle were you driving? Uh, I was driving a sedan. So it it actually hit um, four inches uh, behind my sunroof. And there's a big scrape on the long top of my car. And, uh, yeah, I'm just glad it didn't go through the sunroof. Yeah, definitely. Now, did you, mm-hmm. did you have to stop or what? how did you kind of get out of there? Uh, no, I was running late, so I just kept on going. 
Can you, I, one of those moments I would think afterwards when you were reflecting on it, had you been a minute lo- slower than you were or a minute behind, yeah. you would have been one of those many, many cars stuck. I know. I guess it's uh, a bad day, but I'm still a lucky guy. Yeah. Um, and the, the car behind you, when you uh, saw that it hit that car too, did that car keep going or did that car have to stop? No, I, uh, by the time I looked in the mirror, he'd already pulled over and stopped. So I'm actually curious to know whether he got hit too or he stopped because it was in front of him. Hmm. So I would imagine when you were looking back then, you must have seen if he pulled over and stopped, uh, Did you were you yeah. seeing then people that were stopping or, or was it a bit chaotic? Yeah, it was, it was pretty chaotic behind me. Yeah, I was just kind of the last guy through. So I just saw everyone kind of locking up on their brakes and... Uh, yeah, everything. I, I didn't hear anything or any incidents, so I don't know. Huh. And now, is this a route that you drive daily? Uh, no, I was uh, not. I usually, I'm a Chilliwack boy, so I'm usually around there. But I was in going into the big city today. <laughs> well, you have a, a story to tell uh, about your trip to the big city today, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll tell that to the family back home. Yeah. And uh, did, were you worried at all, or I guess it happened so quickly, but were you worried at all about the fact that when you realized it was a live wire and you saw the sparking uh, that uh, about the fact that that was a wire carrying a lot of electricity? I was actually, yeah. I had thought about that. And um, yeah, I mean, I I called some friends and they told me, you know, you should be fine because your, your tires are rubber and all that. But yeah, I just, I hope it didn't, you know, I, I hope I'm okay. <laughs> I, I'm sure you. I'm sure you will be. It sounds like, like you said, it's a good thing it didn't go in the in the sunroof or, or uh, cause any more yeah. damage on your vehicle. Yeah, yeah we'd be telling a different story now. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a good thing. Uh, what about the yeah. damage though? Will you have to take your vehicle in to get it fixed? Uh, yeah, probably. There's a slight dent on the roof and a big scrape, so probably um, probably go get that sorted this week. All right. And uh, when we talked to Hydro, uh, they were saying that they were hoping to have everything cleared by about 3 p.m. today. Have you have you had to go back to that area or are you going to just avoid that area? Um, no, I'm uh, I'm taking a different route. <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah, I'm not going near the highway today. <laughs> how, how was it, too, when you, like you said, it, it, you saw the spark, you heard it, it sounded like the, the loud, loud, large buzzing sound. I would think that adrenaline probably kicked in as well. Did it take you a while to kind of, once you realized what had happened, to, to kind of wrap your head around that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm still kind of wrapping my head around it, to be honest with you. It was, uh, you know, you look up and you see a spark coming out of a rope or a wire like that, and you, it's something you only see in the movies, right? So, um, you know, it took me a good 10, 20 seconds to kind of figure out what had just happened, for sure. And great that you were able to maintain control of your vehicle. You could see in, in a scenario like that, it would probably pre- be pretty easy to, to even to be distracted or to, to kind of take your eyes off the road. Anything could have gone wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I just, you know, keep my eyes on the road and you look ahead, you know. I think that's where the, the training comes in. Yeah, definitely. So and so and like you said, so this was a, a one a one day or this wasn't your normal route going into the city. How often would you say you drive this route? Uh, maybe uh, I'm usually I usually go out there a lot, but I'm not the one driving. So I'd say I drive personally about twice a year into Vancouver. Wow. And uh, did it make you nervous at all about driving? Obviously, this is a one off. Thankfully, this doesn't happen very often. But did it kind of were you shaking at all afterwards? 
oh, yeah, I was definitely shaking, but it doesn't make me nervous going back. You know, it's one of it's one of those freak incidents that happen once in a while, and I just so happen to be the guy under the power line. All right. Well, Steve, appreciate you taking the time to join us and talk about this. I'm so glad that you are okay and able to mm-hmm. tell this story. Uh, safe travels for the the rest of your travels, and thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. All right. You too. Well, the province, as you may have just heard, is not going ahead with that bid for the 2030 Olympic and Paralympic Winter Games, putting out a release earlier today saying there are billions of dollars in direct costs and potential guarantee and indemnity liability risks on this project that could jeopardize the government's ability to address other pressures facing British Columbians. Well, joining us to talk more about this decision is Lisa Baer, Minister of Tourism, Arts, Culture and Sport. Minister, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jill. How did you come about making this decision, though, as far as who was there to make the decision that the province would not be supporting the bid? Absolutely. I, I do, Jill, if you'll just give me, give me a quick second, though. I, I really want to say thank you to the four host First Nations, as well as the Canadian Olympic Committee, because, you know, this this was such an amazing bid proposal, uh, the first First Nations bid. And we, we understand how important that is and, and applaud that model. And it's something I really hope the IOC looks at moving forward. Um, so we received their, their bid package uh, and, uh, you know, we had to weigh uh, the costs and the benefits and the risks uh, against government priorities and what our government has committed to the, uh, you know, the people of British Columbia, which is, you know, uh, addressing the health care crisis, increasing public safety, addressing uh, the cost of living. So Cabinet came to the decision that we won't uh, be continuing uh, the conversations for 2030. And, you know, we're going to focus on on prioritizing those needs. Uh, you say you're thanking the First Nations that were involved in this as well, but were the First Nations part of this decision or were they even brought in to be part of that discussion that led to the decision that the bid would not be supported? So this has been ongoing work for over a year. Uh, we've worked very closely. Uh, you know, we were approached a year ago to, to, to have this conversation. Uh, we've been working with the nations, with the, with the bid committee, um, you know, consistently in the, in the municipalities for, for well over a year. Uh, we were approaching, um, you know, we were asked to, to provide a, a decision whether uh, government would provide a letter of support to continue moving forward uh, with the conversation around 2030. And so uh, Cabinet made the decision not to do that. Right. But when Cabinet made that decision, were they making that decision having discussed it with any of the First Nations or did you talk to the First Nations before putting out this news release and announcing this today? So we've been working with the First Nations throughout this entire process and, and with the bid committee. That's, like, it's a year-long process. This isn't, you know, this isn't a decision that was just made uh, today. Um, you know, we, we've been working with them all along. I met with the Nations earlier this week to deliver the, um, you know, the results of the Cabinet decision. And, and you know, we're going to continue to focus on, on our, our priorities we have a lot going on in government right now. We're very excited, obviously, uh, you know, to, to host FIFA uh, in 2026 and the Invictus Games in 2025. These are projects that take huge amounts of government resources. And when we take a look at, at the size and scope of a, a project like 
um, the Olympics. You know, they're they're extremely complex, multi-city, multi-venue, uh, you know, logistical transportation, uh, you know, uh, challenges. And then we we all know what happened in 2010 with the with the cost of security. So you know, these are things that we have to all weigh against each other. And ultimately, it was. It was government's decision not to move forward. Uh, there was a post put out earlier today uh, saying that uh, it says the Squamish nation is disappointed with the B.C. government's decision not to support a bid for the 2030 Olympic and Paralympic Winter Games. And it goes on to say it would have been the first Indigenous-led bid in the history of the Games and a major step towards reconciliation through sport. Uh, I, I think, Minister, there are, there are likely many people that agree uh, that putting in billions of dollars into an Olympic game probably isn't a great idea right now, but are you concerned that that's the immediate reaction from First Nations? We're going to hear a lot more from First Nations saying they're disappointed by this, that maybe it could have been done in a better way. Well, absolutely. I know they're disappointed and and I understand and agree with them. This is you know, very disappointing for them. Absolutely. Uh, you know, reconciliation is, is a long journey and our government is committed to that. Just yesterday, we, we had a historic moment here in the legislature where we returned, uh, juris- removed the barriers and returned jurisdiction for children and families, like children welfare, to the nations. You know, this is work that's happening across all our government in every single ministry. And I, I'm committed to the nations when I spoke with them this week that, um, you know, I am committed to reconciliation and moving forward with them. They had a number of pieces in their in their host proposal, uh, you know, that we can work on together. Uh, housing was a big one for the nations. They were very excited about the Athletes Village, for example. You know, we can work on housing with the nations as, as part of the everyday work we're doing, um, you know, around housing, but especially in light of reconciliation. And so, I, you know, I know they're disappointed and, and I fully understand it. It's, it's a tough decision. We don't make it lightly, but, you know, we, we have to weigh the cost of a $2 billion uh, bid uh, against government's priorities. And so that's where we are today. Uh, and when you look at the other events, and I realize these are different events with different price tags, but when you talked and you mentioned FIFA, so when we talk about the fact that we are going ahead as a province and going to host the 2026 FIFA World Cup, we are going ahead with the 2025 Invictus Games. Does that not mm-hmm. send a message to First Nations that these sporting events are more important than what, as the Squamish Nation said, would have been the first Indigenous Games and would have been a big step in reconciliation through sport? Well, I understand the question, but not at all. Um, you know, when we when we uh, were first approached by uh, uh, around the 2030 bid, we hadn't yet secured FIFA and we hadn't yet secured Invictus. Um, you know, when we look at the, the size and we made very conscious decisions in 2021 coming out of, of COVID to support uh, the FIFA bid and to support the, uh, you know, the Invictus bid, uh, to support a tourism sector that had been decimated. But when you look at the size and scope and the scale and, and, and the $2 billion price tag, I mean, currently uh, FIFA is estimated at around uh, $260 million. You know, there, it's just it, the size and scale. You know, you're, you're looking at multi-city, multi-venue, huge security logistics, huge transportation, uh, um, you know, uh, management. There's, there's a number of things that are different in the bid. Uh, but also the difference was the first, uh, you know, bid being a First Nations-led bid. That's an amazing uh, model, and, and I continue to applaud that model. I really hope the IOC looks at that moving forward because it, it's it's 
an amazing model that needs to be uh, recreated. So are you suggesting that the First Nations could go ahead and do this on their own without the support of the province? Well, I, we were asked to provide a letter of support and, and, you know, to continue that conversation. We've declined it. Uh, I, I would imagine it would require that support from government moving forward. Um, you know, the, the nations, uh, uh, you know, had asked for that. And we know the federal government in their hosting proposals, uh, their hosting um, policy also looks for, for that uh, support from the province as well. So you, that's a conversation you'd have to have with the nation. Um, and what, why was the decision made today uh, when we also found out today that the new Premier, David Eby, is going to be sworn in on November 18th? Why make this big decision on a day when the government is still kind of in flux, uh, there's all this change happening? Why not wait and give this a bit more time under the new Premier? Well, like I said, this isn't a decision that was made today. This has been an ongoing, uh, um, you know, conversation for over a year. Uh, we were approached, you know, to take a look at uh, at the Olympics in 2030 over a year ago, and we've been working on it ever since. You know, in collaboration with the municipalities, the the committee, the the First Nations, you know, sport hosting Vancouver. So that this has been an extraordinary amount of work. Uh, being put into it. The nations had uh, um, uh, asked us to provide a letter of support by November. We we uh, had the conversation at Cabinet. We informed the nations earlier this week of the decision. And uh, unfortunately, it's just not the right time uh, for us here at the province. All right, Minister Baer, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jill. I, I'm very happy to come on and have this conversation. Thank you. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.